This week we say goodbye to Luke 5 and we say hello to John 4. Now, this incident from John's Gospel uh, also comes early in Jesus' ministry and his popularity is rising fast and opposition to him is still quite mute and disorganised and his disciples are really behind the curve and haven't really got a clue at what's going on especially when they're a little away from home and they're walking through Samaritan territory. Here's what happens next. Today's reading is taken from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can't miss the bristling barriers that Jesus has to dismantle 
in order to show grace to this dear Samaritan woman. She sees them and she shows that she sees them in her hostility and her mistrust and her self-hatred and her incredulity. They're so substantial that she names them in her first sentence to Jesus. No small talk, just straight in with, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Bristling with all of those barriers. Then, uh, just in case we're in any doubt, John adds his editorial comment. He simply says, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There is a racial barrier. Jew versus Samaritan. It's of the most brutal kind. They're near neighbours, people who've lived closely enough to each other to really hate and really mistrust each other and get under each other's skin. And we see exactly the same point when Jesus casts a Samaritan traveller as the hero of his parable in Luke's Gospel. And then, just to spice it up, we have a gender barrier too, man versus woman. And this barrier extended right across the ancient world and of course exists to this very day. There was a culture of male superiority and female insignificance and expendability and distrust. So the scene is set for an absolute humdinger of an argument or steely silence. But not, we would guess, the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with anybody in the whole of the New Testament. I think that most of us have walked in to situations of equal awkwardness when we've instantly felt that we're on the back foot because of the essence of who we are, whether that's our skin colour or our gender or our accent or our job or a combination of those things. I remember meeting Afrikaans people when I lived and worked in South Africa in the early 1990s. And for some of the people that I met, the second they heard this English accent, they went on the offensive and immediately straight in my face, Boer War, concentration camp, uh, English arrogance, all of those things could be summed up in a fantastic Afrikaans swear word that I can't possibly repeat here. Uh, the people that I was meeting had formed an instant hostility to me simply because of where I was from. Only a few years later, uh, I was in Reading, helping uh, to lead a mission at a church in Reading. And I was invited to the mums and babies group of one church. And it was before we had kids, uh, so it's more than possible that I was a bit nervous and uh, cack-handed. And it was in quite a tough uh, neighbourhood in Reading where at least some of the mums, I think, had probably been seriously let down by fathers and boyfriends and partners. But I was still shocked when one of the young mums who was attending uh, the 
group it came up to me and said to me very forcibly, you have to go and you have to leave now uh, because uh, there, there's, you being a man, it's upsetting everybody that's here in the room. Now, those are very minor blips. Uh, far more often, I have been treated with great respect and kindness by people that I've met right around the world. But like many of you, I know what it feels like to have people form an instantly negative judgment about me just because of who I am. And I'm aware too that many of you will have had far more devastating and damaging encounters with other people who dismiss you out of hand. One of the things that we get to today it is to watch how Jesus calmly dismantles those barriers. He doesn't do it top gear style in a sort of fit of ham-fisted destruction. He's like a master mason who's taking down the dividing wall of hostility brick by brick. He's subtle and he's playful, but he is determined. And this is, of course, one of the big themes of Jesus's life and outlook. It's one of the key things that he wants us to have in mind when we think about what it means, like Simon Peter, to go fishing for people. Which people, we might ask? All people, says Jesus, but especially those who others see as lost or impossible or as beyond the pale. Jesus showed, really throughout his life, that he was absolutely determined to bring all kinds of people into the kingdom of God. This is what the Old Testament foresees, that the Jewish people will bring at the light of God to the whole world. And we see Jesus doing so one person at a time. But this was all preparatory. This demolishing of animosity and hatred and suspicion could only really be done on the cross. Listen to Paul in Ephesians. He says there, for he himself, talking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall, of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Or again, listen to Paul in Galatians. Paul says there, so in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I really hope that we all believe that. I hope that we are praying and living for a church in which ancient and new animosities and hatreds are undone. And I hope that you are praying for the Spirit to cleanse your soul 
of all deep-seated animosity and distrust and arrogance and suspicion. Then, and only then, can the Spirit send you as an ambassador of Jesus to show how his love dismantles prejudice. Now as the playful banter progresses, uh, as we saw so brilliantly in the clip from The Chosen, Jesus, through patience, dismantles the barriers of race and gender. But you may be wondering, why does Jesus choose to confront her about her five plus one husbands? Isn't this the spiritual equivalent of dirty tricks on Jesus's part, hitting her with some insider knowledge? Doesn't it, in that case, simply conform to the woman's worst fears that he is condemning her out of hand? That even if he is the Messiah, he is there to judge her. And so she can't possibly be the right kind of person to follow the Messiah. I think what we see here is, in fact, grace at its most beautiful and arresting. Grace because Jesus completely ignores how others see her. And grace because he recognises that she too is made in the image of God. And grace because Jesus helps her to see where her bad decisions and where her shame have led her how deeply isolated and miserable she is. It's as if she never properly looked in the mirror until now. It's grace because Jesus helps her to see that her shame is a turning point and not a destination. Jesus wants to restore her dignity, not establish his moral superiority. This has been a recurring theme throughout September. We saw it as Simon Peter, do you remember, fell on his knees after the miraculous catch of fish. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. We see it in a man with leprosy, when he's on his knees, reaching out for Jesus' touch. We see it in the paralyzed man, uh, confronted uh, first not with healing, but with his need for forgiveness too. The new thing we have today is where this might be leading. Simon Peter is told he will be fishing for people from now on. The leper is reconciled with his own community. The paralysed man disappears from view, simply praising God. But the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman then moves on to worship. Jesus' main point is that the where and the how and the when of worship are not really important. She thought differently. She saw two rival mountains, two rival peoples, two competing geographical visions of worship, very, very binary, winners and losers, the privileged and those who are left out. And Jesus says, no, that is no longer the case, no longer relevant. Now it's you and God. He comes 
by his spirit. It's not about going to the right mountain, says Jesus. It's not about humanly directed activity in a special place. Now this challenges a lot of our presumptions, but it is also a huge encouragement right now in these uncertain times. It is us and God. Do you feel that worship is harder with some of uh, the most cherished things that we have taken away from us. Well, I do, I'm sure you do too. But don't blame Zoom or Facebook or Christchurch or the Church of England because worship was never about going to the right mountain with the right people and the right preacher and the right band playing the right playlist. Worship is far more dangerous and life-changing than that. It's you and God, mediated by his spirit, by the truth of Jesus. It's not a place or a ritual or a priesthood. Don't you love how the story ends? Now the barriers of race and gender have been dismantled. Now her need of Jesus is so firmly accepted, she leaves her water jar and she rushes back to her hometown, the place of her humiliation and the place of her isolation, with the simple message, come and see. There's loads still that she doesn't understand or even know, but something seismic has changed and she knows enough to want the very people, the very people who had looked down on her and excluded her. She wants those people to see and know grace in the same way. Now, if you think that there are some social barriers to you sharing your faith with your friends and family, some polite molehills of embarrassment uh, for you to climb over, well, think again. Think what it was like for this woman to run back into Sychar and to gather people together uh, to come to Jesus. The very same people that had made her life so unbearable and so awkward that she preferred working and walking in the midday sun rather than being with them. And John tantalizingly tells her that, uh, tells us, sorry, that Jesus stayed there uh, for two more days and that many more became believers in Jesus during that time. That's how these things so often work. One person experiences the grace of Jesus and then goes and tells another. And this autumn, we would love that to be true at Christ Church as we launch our Autumn Alpha course. All the details about how to join are on the Alpha section of our web page. So please, if you are new here or just settling in here, we really encourage you to come. It'll be on Zoom, so you can do it from home. Very easy, uh, no awkwardness. Uh, but it also would be great uh, if uh, you want to reach out to other people and invite them on too couldn't be easier to be part of it so do please uh, before the end of the day uh, go on uh, to the website check out the alpha section and register uh, for our next course
Thank you.